means I ask a question, you raise your hand, and the mic guys get to you, and you answer out loud, all right? This is where you're going to help me introduce this subject. Before I ask the question, show of hands, how many of you have ever, and I'm not talking about months or weeks or days, it could have just been a few minutes or a few hours, it could have been months, weeks, or whatever, all right? How many of you have ever struggled with assurance of your salvation? Let me see your hand. Mine is up. Many people's hands have been up. Good. Okay. Now here's the question for discussion. What reasons are there or why, if you want to put it this way, why do people doubt or not have assurance of their salvation? What are some reasons? Now a lot of you raised your hands and I've struggled with assurance of my salvation. Well, why? What, what was your struggle? What was the, the, what was the key issue for you? Or if you don't want to get that personal, but just talk in general terms, that's fine too. All right, Joel, we got the mic coming to you. For me, it was because I was living in sin. Aha, okay. Well, I want to expand on that for a minute. If I am living in sin, if, that is, I am willfully choosing to disobey God's commands. That could be choosing to do what God forbids or stubborn, stubbornly refusing to do what God commands. Either way, okay? Then what, what happens? Do I lose my salvation, by the way? No, I don't. But what, what gets broken? The relationship doesn't get broken. He's always my Heavenly Father. But what breaks? The fellowship breaks. And the longer I walk in my life out of fellowship with God the less assurance I'm going to have that I'm his child. Make sense? So that is a very legitimate point. And a lot of people over the years that I've had the privilege of helping know the gospel, they owned the gospels, we're going to see tonight from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4, but they come to realize, you know what? I have been regarding iniquity in my heart. I've been willfully disobeying God. I've not been walking in fellowship with him for a long time. And the farther I get from God, the more I doubt my salvation because there's not the fellowship. So the fe- if I don't have fellowship, it makes me question, do I really have a relationship? Make sense? Okay, what are some other reasons? All right, Brother Dwyer up here, Steve Dwyer. They were so young, or it happened so long ago, they can no longer remember the details of what happened or what they were even thinking at the time. Okay. So sometimes it's the thing, man, I got saved so long ago, especially when I was a little kid, and I really don't remember exactly what happened, right? Interesting. I was saved when I was four years old, and I remember almost every detail of that salvation experience. But when I was 11 years old, I doubted my salvation. And I'll share the story in just a few minutes as we get into um, our, our passage tonight. Somebody else that would want to share an idea. One more. Becky. I kind of felt like I had to keep doing and had to keep being good in order to maintain my salvation. Okay. So kind of the idea of, yeah, I'm saved by faith, but I've got to follow up with good works to stay saved. Right? Okay, we are created unto Christ, in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Yeah, but for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not a works lest any man should boast. 
So we are saved by grace through faith. Once we're saved, God then has made us a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And part of that purpose that God saved us and in redeeming us is that he has not only purchased the redemption of our soul out of eternal death in hell, not only has he made us his child and, 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 and established an eternal future for us, but he also has the purpose of us habitually living a godly life of righteousness, doing good works. We're to be like our Savior, right? For whom he did foreknow, Romans 8, 29, them he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. And what did Jesus go about doing? He went about doing good, okay? But we can get that confused. Good. These have been some excellent things. So let me kind of share with you a little bit of my testimony. Then we're going to read these four verses. And basically all I'm going to do is just kind of get into some of uh, the Greek context of these four verses and, and kind of establish a baseline for our series moving forward. So this is more of an introduction, uh, an introductory kind of a message. But we're going to go through a checklist for assurance and salvation. That's what I'm going to entitle this. You know, um, a pilot um, has a pre-flight checklist. And no matter how many hours that pilot has logged in that particular aircraft, there is a pre-flight checklist. And they have, sometimes they have to go around the outside. If it's a smaller plane, they have to go around the outside of the plane. They have to check things off. They get in the plane. They're checking things. All right. And everything has to be checked off that list in order. <coughs> okay. And so, you know what? God has given us not a checklist, not a to-do list for salvation, but a checklist. There are so many different reassurances of salvation in the scripture. And, and here's why I want to bring this series. It's why the Lord's laid it on my heart. First of all, it is not to cause anybody to doubt their salvation. But as we go through this, if a person says, like from the message tonight, huh, you know what? That's not true of me or that is true of me. And the Holy Spirit says, you know, you're not a believer. You know, we are to make sure our salvation, okay? But it's not my purpose to cause you to doubt your salvation. My heart is that if that's the truth, that if that's true, that God would do that work in your life, obviously. But it is also because, you know what? I found through the years, when I was 11 years old, I had a struggle with the assurance of my salvation. It was the major spiritual battle up to that point in my life. And, and it was the main time in my life when I struggled with assurance of salvation. Now, after that moment, from then until now, I've had no major struggles with assurance of my salvation. But there have been, still have been times when Satan has tried to sniper me without. And I believe that until Christ takes me home to heaven, either by death or the rapture, that there will be times when t- Satan's going to take pot shots to get me and every other Christian to doubt their salvation. And that's why God has given us so much in his word to help us to have that assurance that we are born-again believers. Okay? And then, that which you learn, hopefully through this, not only will help you, will be something that you can use to be a benefit to other believers. It could be moms and dads that you're able to help your children through this. Uh, or it could be uh, people within your family that, that name the name of Christ or, or somebody that uh, is within this church or another believer in the area that goes to a different Bible preaching church. But maybe just in your, in your relationship with them, this subject comes up and you will be equipped then to also help them. So let's look tonight at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 to 4. Moreover, brethren... I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which ye also received, and wherein ye stand. 
By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again third day according to the scriptures. That is what I call the gospel in a nutshell. I love to take people to this passage of scripture, either when dealing with assurance of salvation or just getting a chance to witness to them. So I want to look at this. First of all, what what does he say in verse 1? Moreover, brethren. Okay? So Paul is writing this to born-again believers. Okay? And he is saying this. He's saying, brethren. He was a Jew, right? And most of the people in the Corinthian uh, church would have been what? Gentiles. So he's not calling them Jewish brethren in that sense of national brethren. All right? Like when Ronald Reagan would say, my fellow Americans. Uh, not like that, but he was saying, my, my fellow brothers and, and sisters in Christ, those we're related uh, through the blood of Christ. We have been born again into the family of God. We've received the adoption of sons. And then he says this, I declare unto you. And that's interesting because it's in the present active indicative, which is continuing action. And it literally translates, I am making known or I am clarifying so what Paul is saying here is he is saying, I am continually going to be clarifying the gospel to you. I believe for two purposes. Number one, so, because there were people in the Corinthian church that needed clarity in the gospel so they could more, with more confidence and, and, and with more assurance in the truth, be able to share the gospel with unbelievers. They needed some clarification on some things so that they would be able to clearly and carefully share the gospel with others. But I also believe that part of this is this clarifying is that there were some in the Corinthian church that needed assurance of their salvation. So Paul's going through the scriptures, talking about what Christ did and, and the nature of salvation so that they could be clear in their understanding. God wants you to know. He wants you to have absolute confidence that your sins have been forgiven, that you have eternal life, that you're his child, that you have an eternal future with him. And so he says, I declare, I'm making this known. So if Paul found it necessary to be making known the gospel to the Corinthian church for those purposes, I think it's a pretty good idea if we go through a series on assurance of salvation. I wrote these thoughts down. Maybe for some of you, this will strike a chord with you, but just praying the sinner's prayer over and over will never give you the assurance of salvation you're looking for. Sometimes when I'm talking with a person about salvation, they'll, they'll, they'll kind of bring this out. They'll say, well, I've prayed. And, and man, every time I hear the gospel, man, I pray. And, and I pray. And, no, and well, what are you praying? And they pray, you know, something. You say, well, that's a sinner's prayer. Theologically, that is right. That is accurate. And they keep praying it over and over and over again. And, say, and they think, well, maybe the next time I pray it, then I won't have any more problems with assurance of my salvation. But just praying, quote, the sinner's prayer over and over again is not going to give you that assurance that you're looking for. If you're trying to evaluate the quantity and quality of saving faith and trying to measure up to that requirement, assurance will be elusive to you. I don't know if I had enough faith. I don't know if my faith was genuine enough. People told me, I didn't cry any tears, to which I say, so what? Where do you find in the scriptures that crying tears are necessary to the the process of of being born again. Now, certainly God wants us to be broken over our sin, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, thou will not despise, but it is not a requirement from God that you cry when you call on him to be saved. Well, I don't know if I had enough faith. 
I don't know if my faith was sincere enough. What are those people trying to do? They're trying to evaluate the quality and the quantity of their faith. Somebody holler out, what's the problem with that? It's focusing on myself. How much faith do I have? What's the quality of my faith? Where should the focus be? It's the power of Jesus Christ. He's the one who does the saving. I do the calling. And we'll talk about that more over the next few weeks. Thank you, Brother Steve, for helping me with that. That's exactly right. If you think that you must get the theological equation exactly correct in your prayer for salvation, that won't do it either. Well, maybe I didn't say this, or I didn't use that term, or I... Remember when Jesus gave the parable about the two men who went up into the temple to pray? The one was a Pharisee and the other was a publican. What was that sinner's prayer like? What did, how did Jesus quote the publican? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what did Jesus say about that man? He went away righteous. Okay? Now, certainly, and we're going to get to this because there's a huge exception clause in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. And I want us to see it. Verse 3, it looks like it has two exception clauses. It only has one exception clause. And we're going to look at it in just a minute. because It's a conditional. Let's put it this way. It's a conditional clause, not an exception clause. Really a condition clause. And we'll look at it in a minute. But you know what? If you're trying to get a theological formula just right, here, here's the wonderful thing. Salvation is so simple. And Jesus said, unless you come with the faith of a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Martin Luther said, God must love the common man because he made so many of them. And he made the gospel simple so that common men can trust Christ. So the gospel is simple. And yet you can study all your life through the scriptures and the richness of the doctrine of soteriology that is salvation you will never completely exhaust that study. There are new facets and wonders of our salvation. I mean, that's going to be one of the amazing things in heaven that will cause us to be delighted in our worship of God. Yes, who He is and what He has done, but just, just the whole topic of salvation. We can't even fathom the depths of the mysteries of salvation. And yet God made it very clear so that whosoever will may come. Because God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You know what? Satan wants to get into our head and cause us to doubt our salvation. Because two things. We won't be able to grow. We can't move forward if you're always, you're not even sure you're saved. How are you going to walk forward with confidence and begin to grow if you're not even sure there's any spiritual life there? And the other thing is, how can you serve God and how can you get engaged in the battle if Satan gets into your mind all the time? I, I was preaching at a camp for inner city kids and there was a counselor there. This, there was a guy there in his 30s who had his MDiv from a good conservative a theological seminary who struggled with assurance of his salvation and was struggling with assurance of his salvation. And he came to camp that summer to try to settle that matter and try to transition from dealing with that so that he could get ready to move into the ministry. And you know what? He realized, man, I'm so struggling with assurance of my salvation. How can I ever minister to anybody else if I'm not even assured of salvation myself? And a lot of what, had, what boiled down to, to was exactly what Brother Steve said, that his focus was on himself and getting a formula right and his quality and quantity of faith. And it was not on Christ. 
and trust in Christ. After all, for by grace are you saved through faith. You've got to trust. All right, let's get back. I could, I'm going to, I'm, time's going to go away from me. I could preach on this a lot. But I've got several weeks, Lord willing. Unless the rapture comes, and that would be even better. Now, let's look back at this. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. What is the gospel? Literally, what's that translate to? Good news, which I preached unto you. That is the verb form of gospel. Okay? So, like, there is a noun, gift. All right? Now, men, again, I'm putting in another plea for you to come to the bridal shower for Daniel and Giovanna on Saturday. Okay? Me and Daniel don't want to, and Steve don't want to be the only guys there, right? Amen, guys? Okay, we'd like to have some other men there with us, right? Okay? I'm going to make the pastors come if I can. And because uh, I, want, I want some, some male companionship there. And I hope they have more than just cucumber sandwich things, you know, for the snack. <laughs> Hint. I'm just uh, Amen. Oh, there you go. Okay, I'm getting some support now. But so, so there will be gifts. That's, that's a noun. But you can also say, hey... I want to gift you with, let's say that you had a condo or something and you wanted to gift them for their honeymoon and letting them stay in your condo, you know, uh, for free. And so you say, I gifted them a week at my condo. So it's both a verb, it's also a noun. That's what Paul is, is saying here. Look, I gospelized to you the gospel, all right? We looked at that a little bit this morning. And then received, okay? Look at this, he goes, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received. Now look, if you would, because he says in verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Same word. So what does that word receive mean? According to strong, it means to receive near, to associate oneself with. And then strong adds this in parentheses, in any familiar or intimate act or relation. So here's what I call it. I call it owning it in my soul. Okay, so receiving Christ. You talk about, hey, have you received Christ as your savior? What does that mean? I'm saying, have you received into your soul, into your life, not just some elementary factual things, truths, the personal reality. You've entered into a faith relationship with Jesus Christ and you own in your soul. It's like the hymn writer said, I love this phrase and I'll use it all the time. Jesus died for all mankind, the hymn writer wrote, and Jesus died for me. Sometimes, and and I understand we need to be careful with phrases and we certainly don't want to confuse children, but sometimes in children's testimonies or even adults, they'll say, I received Jesus into my heart. But I believe that that can be a legitimate testimony because they are saying, I received, I accepted into my life in a very personal and intimate way. Not in an elementary, not in just a scholastic kind of accepting or acknowledging of these facts, okay, or these axioms. But I have received the truth and Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. I have received him personally and I'm owning the gospel in my soul. I'm owning the reality that Jesus loves me and he died for me and he rose again. I call on him and now I've entered into an an eternity long relationship and friendship with Jesus Christ. So I have received, it's a strong word. And then he also says this, and wherein ye 
in verse 1, wherein you stand. This word stand is an interesting word. It means to abide, to continue, to establish. It's sometimes used to mean to establish a covenant. Okay? Romans 10, 13 is a wonderful promise, is it not? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you see that as a covenant agreement, what's our part? Call upon the name of the Lord. What's God's part of the covenant? You'll be saved. And so God enters into this covenant agreement in a sense with us that if we will call on him by faith, he is obligated himself legally and he is righteous and he is the righteous judge of all the earth and really save all the universe. And he will meet that obligation of that covenant commitment that he has made to us to save us. It means to make firm, to fix as established. And then this word saved. Look, if you would, in verse 2, by which also ye are saved. The word saved here means to be delivered or protected, rescued, preserved, safe, and unharmed. One, one of the linguists put it this way, to remain unharmed from final ruin. Man, I like that. I have been saved. My soul has been saved from the final ruin of the second death in hell and the lake of fire. And then look at this, because this is not one of the conditional clauses. Look at this in verse 2. If ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. This is what we call, this word if is what we call being in the condition of the first class. And so Paul is assuming that this is true. It might be easier for our modern English minds to think of it this way. If Paul phrased it since. Okay, so let's go back and read verse 2. Instead of if... But since there, since ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. And the idea of keeping in memory is the idea is to hold fast, to hold or to cling to it. So since you are clinging to this truth, this is what you rely upon. You are clinging to Christ. You're clinging to his promise and to the gift that he made possible through the sacrifice of himself on the cross. You are clinging to that. You, since you are holding fast, you know you are saved. Now here comes... The question of the conditional clause. Look at this in verse 2. Unless ye have believed in vain. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to believe in vain? It could mean this. It could translate this way. Unless you believed to no purpose, cause, or reason. Now, I'm going to use Krista as an illustration. I didn't ask her permission, but I know that she would give it to me or I wouldn't dare hazard it. Okay. When my wife was in fourth grade, they went to a church in Colorado, not the, not the church that she ended up going to the Christian school and then growing up in, but she went to a church. This was a church that would have taught the gospel and she was in Sunday school and her fourth grade Sunday school teacher one Sunday said to her girls in her Sunday school class, and, and I'm not questioning her motives. I'm sure her motives were, were sincere, but she said, okay, girls this morning, we're going to go into the church service, and when the pastor gives the invitation, we're all going to go forward, and you're all going to get saved. <coughs> okay. Is there any engaging of the reason there? Is there any clear, clarified purpose? 
in that girl's heart, hey, I am a wretched sinner condemned to an eternal hell because God is a just and holy God and he is offended by my sin. His holiness is offended by my sin. I've broken his law. The wages of sin is death. I'm headed for hell, but he loves me. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, shed his blood for me. He was buried and he rose again and he extends to me the offer of eternal life. So I want to be, my soul to be rescued. I want to be saved. I want to have that confidence to know that I am right with God, forgiven, and I have eternal life forever. There was none of that. So Krista walked up to the front with all the other girls, right? And got saved. And thought, hey, I'm good with God. Maybe that's not some people's story. Some people's story is this. Hey, you know what? Um, there's these, we're at a Christian camp, and there's these other kids, and they're going forward. And something's happening. Oh, I think I'll go forward too. And then later on, it's like, oh, I got saved. Because I went forward with a bunch of other kids. And we all just kind of prayed the same prayer. All right? Or, you know, sometimes kids that are raised in a Christian home kind of treat getting saved as a, as a rite of passage. In other words, my mom and dad are saved. And they take me to church. I know the gospel. I guess they expect me because I'm growing up in a Christian home to get saved. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to get saved because that's, I'm in a Christian home. My mom and dad are saved. I'm just going to get saved because I just want to go along and I want to please mom and dad. Okay. I want to get saved. But again, I believe that that is believing in vain. That's not, that is not believing to a specific purpose and with reason. Because salvation Putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior is not something you check off your to-do list. It is a heart response to the love of God and an understanding of the need of your soul. So he's saying, unless you believed in vain, unless you didn't understand at all what you were doing uh, and all of that. Now, going back to what somebody said as one of the reasons why, well, why do uh, sometimes people doubt their salvation? Sometimes, what well, was a long time ago, I was a little kid, I don't remember all of the details. I remember the details. I was, I was saved, and I have to go back and look at the calendar. It was in late February, probably February 24th or 25th, 1972. I was four years old. We were at the Rifle Range Baptist Church in Winter Haven, Florida. Mrs. Simpson was the pastor's wife, and she was doing children's church. And she taught on how uh, Jesus called Peter. Remember Luke 5, where Jesus says to Peter, let's go fishing. They go out into the deep, they launch down the nets, and they catch a great multitude of fishes. And as they come back to shore, you know, Peter's just worshiping Christ. And then Christ calls them, hey, listen, I'll make you fishers of men. I remember that, okay? But I also remember that Mrs. Simpson gave a come-forward invitation for the boys and girls that wanted to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, my mom and dad are believers. My dad taught me, started teaching me how to memorize and quote verses when I was two years old. And so some of the verses my dad taught me uh, as a kid that I memorized were gospel verses. I got enough spankings from my mom and dad to know that I was a sinner. (laughs) But I also saw the reality of the relationship that my mom and dad had with Jesus Christ. And he was real to me. And I realized that, that because, that yes, God loved me, and yet because I was a sinner, that did separate me from God. And that I was under his judgment for my sin. And so I went forward, and I asked Mrs. Simpson, I told 
Simpson that I wanted to get saved. And she took me to a little, it's one of those little whitewashed cinder block Sunday school rooms, those little white wicker chairs. We sat down. She opened up the word of God. She shared with me the way of salvation. Most of those verses I had memorized, the verse the Holy Spirit used to turn on the light of understanding in my heart was Acts 16, 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And I prayed and I called on Christ that day. When I was 11 years old, my mom went through a, a, a struggle or a battle, we believe, with cancer. Um, the Lord chose to heal my mom. But for that year, my mom was extremely sick. My dad, we came off the road. My dad would fly to meetings. We'd gone a week or two, and he'd come back. My grandparents came down from New York State to help take care of us kids and my, and my mom. Uh, we kids were put in a little Christian school. And you know what? We were, and as a kid, I thought, you know, we're facing maybe the death of my mom. You know what? I'm going to die someday. And did I, did I really know what I was doing when I was four years old? I remember, I remember the details, but just remembering the details can't save me. That I really put my faith in Jesus Christ. So one, one night, my dad was home from revival meetings. I got out of bed. I went to my dad's study, and I said, Dad, I'm not sure I'm saved. And so my dad took me through the scriptures. He says, is this what you're believing? I said, Yes. I said, and I called on the Lord. He says, well, after going through this, now do you know that you're saved? I said, I'm still not sure. My dad said this very wisely. He said, son, God wants you to know that you're saved. And God is a very patient understanding God. So why don't you just in your own words pray and tell God, Lord, I think I believed on you then as my Savior. But I'm not sure, and I want to be sure. So if I didn't believe on you then, I'm believing on you now. And I prayed, and I made sure of my salvation that night. And from that day to this, though Satan has attacked me, I've had no serious struggles with assurance of my salvation. That's all of God's grace, and it's based on the truths of God's word. And I realize now, looking back, when I was four years old, I did not believe in vain. If you're asking me now, what happened? Were you saved at four or were you saved at 11? I will tell you with absolute confidence, I was saved at four years old. I got assurance of salvation when I was 11. But I got that assurance, and you can have that assurance too. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at other passages of Scripture that will help you to understand and be able to help others to understand so that you can have an absolute rock-solid assurance and you can stand firm and fixed in, in, in your understanding of salvation and your faith in Christ. Now, verse 3, he says this, For I delivered or entrusted unto you first of all that which I also received, how the Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul is saying, in effect, hey, what I'm declaring to you as the good news is exactly what I have received. This is what I'm relying on for my salvation. So he shares that with them. And then he talks about this, how that Christ died for our sins. Christ, the promised one, Messiah, God in the flesh, the one foretold in the Old Testament that would come and die. He died for our sins. This word for sins is our offenses. Christ, sin breaks, God, sin breaks God's law and offense is holy character. It's rebellion. And Christ died on the cross because of my rebellious acts. Because of my sin offenses, Messiah died for my sin. But this is interesting. He said how that Christ died for whose sin? Our sin. Man, you know what? What a, what a transformation of attitude. Even Paul in his testimony says, look, before I was saved, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He says, even regarding or touching the law, I was what? Blameless. Blameless. 
That was above my, you know, he, he excelled above his peers when it came to religion. And he was sincere in that religion. But what does he say about that later? He said, I kind of let us loss. Man, my faith is in Christ. And here's a wonderful, Paul was saying to these, hey, Christ died for our sins. And then he was buried and then he was raised. This is actually in the perfect passive indicative. It could be translated this way. He has been raised. And what Paul is emphasizing is the fact, not only that Christ resurrected from the dead, but that that is a permanent thing, that Christ is still arisen, resurrected from the dead. There is an assurance there that Christ is the living Savior. Man, just a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to have on Friday night, we're going to have a Good Friday service commemorating the, the night in which our Savior was betrayed and when he was crucified and he died. And then on Easter Sunday morning, we are going to celebrate and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love that song. I serve a risen Savior. And you know what? That's what Paul is saying here. We serve a risen Savior. And this one who is resurrected from the dead is alive forevermore and has the power and the authority to cleanse from sin, to give everlasting life. And because he lives forever and because he's the one who saves us, we also have eternal life. We will live forever. Notice, though, that there is a phrase that is repeated twice. And we're going to close with this in just a minute. Just a couple of statements on this. What phrase do you see repeated twice in these four verses? Not word, phrase. According to the scriptures. Two things I just want to point out. First of all, according to the Old Testament, which was the written word of God that they had at that point, Jesus fulfilled the prophecies concerning Messiah. All this happened according to the Old Testament scriptures, in fulfillment of all of the messianic prophecies. And then the other point is this. Notice that assurance of salvation is based upon the truth and promise of God through his word, the scriptures. Our confidence is in the living son of God, the word made flesh, and we know of him through the written scriptures. Therefore, knowing that God's word is forever settled in heaven, Knowing that this is unchanging truth, we stand on solid ground. We can know we have everlasting life. Let's bow our heads and we're going to thank God for the assurance that we can have. Maybe, as I've been speaking on this tonight, maybe the Spirit of God has pointed out to you that you believed in vain. We're not going to have a come forward invitation tonight, but when the service is dismissed, I'll be back at the connection point for a little while and then roaming around in the foyer. Um, we are having a college and career activity at our house later tonight, but you know what? I'm in no rush to get there if I get the opportunity to help you settle the matter of the assurance of your salvation. If you don't know for sure, I would love to take you through uh, the Word of God again and help you with that. If you know that you're saved, would you just rejoice? Even as Lauren was talking about, we enter into thanksgiving for what God has done, and we give praise to him for who he is. And on this passage tonight, we have so much to give in thanksgiving and praise to our God. Our Heavenly Father, tonight, in the quietness of this moment, our hearts reflect on your mighty power, the power that conquered sin and death and the grave. That resurrection power. For Jesus said in Luke, 
I, John 11, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, we thank you for life that we have in Christ, eternal life, that we will never perish because it's based on the promise and the character of our God according to the infallible scriptures. And so, Lord, no matter what our feelings are, no matter how we try to figure things out with our human reasoning, help us to submit those things to the authority of your word. And may we allow your Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts. For those who may be even now struggling with assurance of their salvation, and they are born again, give them that assurance through the scriptures tonight that they can walk with confidence so that they can pursue spiritual growth, so that they can have every boldness to come into your very presence and to be in fellowship with you. I think of what Joel mentioned as one of the causes for lack of assurance of salvation. That is practicing sin, living in as a believer in disobedience in some area of our life. And the further we walk down that path, the less assurance we're going to have. So, Lord, I pray that even through that tonight, your Holy Spirit would gently but firmly point that out and that you would draw those precious sheep back to yourself, you, Lord Jesus, who are the good shepherd. Thank you for the very clear, verified truth of your word upon which our eternal expectation and confidence stands. And we praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. And Pastor Mike will lead us in a dismissing course. Again, I will be back in the foyer or by the connection point. If I can be of spiritual help to you, please come and see me.